So if we're looking at just VO2 max, that test can typically be over within 8 to 12 minutes. Sorry to be telling you this now. <laughs> it, it hurts just as much. You just sure. ramping up much faster. Welcome to Stand Up Pedal Action. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Supa. After a little bit of a pause, Josh and I are back in the studio again. And to start things off with this new fun season, we have somebody from last season. Over the few months that we were gone, we cooked up a few ideas, and one of them was with former guest Michael Brothers, who, after teaching us the wonders of how to suffer in the snow as well as on a bike, was dropping an incredible amount of knowledge about how respiration works and how breathing actually impacts what you do on a bike. So we thought, what would happen if we actually put one of Josh or I through a VO2 max test? A lot of you out there might have heard of this, might have heard of other metabolic testing, and you wonder how could that affect your training? Well, it just so happens that today's guest, Mike Brothers, has exactly the equipment we need for such an endeavor. So, before we get into what happened when we decided to torture test Josh, Michael, welcome back to the show. Yeah, hey, thank you so much for having me back. Um, great to be back here in the blanket fort. <laughs> it's great having you, and we're excited to, to dive in a little bit to uh, your expertise here, um, getting to put that, that PhD in integrated physiology to, to use here. Yeah, I guess I didn't put the doctor on the front of your name. I probably should have well, done that. I right. apologize. Um, although, before we started rolling today, you told us there's a couple things that you want to set the record straight about from your first episode. I, yeah, so... Um, it sounds like one is going to prevent you from getting beat over the head with a ski pole. Possibly, yes. Yeah, so <laughs> uh, those that know me, I'm, I'm sometimes bad with dates and names. So I um, tried out for the Olympics in 2002. I think I said I tried out again in 2000. 16. Um, actually, tried out again in 2010. Um, 2006, which I also, I think I said 2016 in the last podcast, was the year if I was to have made the team, uh, probably would have been my best year. And that's the year that I had a, a good friend that, that did make the team. Um, so, so those dates um, got screwed up in the last podcast. Um, I was also on the military Olympic ski team from 99 through 2005. Um, and then the, the, the even bigger one, I just finished, I think when we did the podcast, I just finished testing Jesse Diggins. And I mentioned that she won our one, and I think I said only gold medal. And of course, she won it with Keegan Randall um, at the Olympics. Uh, I believe that was 2018. And of course, Jesse has since added a silver and a bronze at the most recent Olympics. So, Well, with the massive listenership here on Supa, it was only a matter of time before <laughs> you caught hell about that. So. Exactly. It's like, what type of skier is this guy that doesn't, yeah. <laughs> doesn't remember who got the other gold medal? You know, so. Good to set the record straight there. Yeah. Yep. We've got it set straight. And also, for the record, for anybody who might not have gone back through our back catalog and found your first episode, can you explain again what brings you on the show today? What is it you do day in and day out in life as we know it? So when we did the podcast, I was being um, courted is probably not the right word, but um, there was discussion <laughs> of me working at the, the, the Hibble Center, mm -hmm. um, running their, their altitude and human performance lab. Um, and so uh, that did happen. Um, I've been doing that, I guess, now 
Uh, it's been kind of a slow start. It was delayed because of COVID, um, but going on, I think, month nine, month 10. All right. Um, so I'm the director of uh, uh, physiology and uh, human performance there at the Hibble Center under Center Health, where we did your VO2 max and LT test. Yes. Yes, indeed. Um, can you provide just a brief overview of what the Hibble Center is? Uh, I can. So I don't, I can't speak to all parts of the Hibble Center, um, but it, uh, it's an incredible facility. I mean, it, I would put it on par with the Olympic Training Center that we have here in Colorado Springs that we, I mean, the U.S. has one in Lake Placid. We've got one, you know, down in California with numerous locations, depending on the sport. Um, this is a world-class facility that is open to the public versus having to be, you know, an Olympic level or, um, you know, pre-Olympian in training. Um, and so incredible resource. I mean, they have uh, physical therapists, they have medical doctors. Um, I've seen them work with, you know, kids in soccer leagues that are recovering from injuries or just want to improve their performance. You know, they're really dedicated to a certain sport can do just about anything that the Olympic Training Center can do. And, and of course, the area that I kind of my, um, the, the area that I control, we look at metabolic testing, so VO2 max testing um, with anyone from just the casual weekend athlete up to we've had some um, Olympic level folks come through. Um, uh, so exercise performance, mostly bike or treadmill, although we're looking at being able to add some other modalities to it, uh, roller skiing or whatever. Um, also resting metabolic rate measurements. And then of course we have our, our altitude room so we can simulate sea level or go all the way up to about 18,000 feet. So it's wild. And part of the reason that we're talking about this today is one of the fun things about this facility, which you touched on, but I want to highlight mm -hmm. is that unlike facilities like the Olympic training center, this is open and available to the public. Yes. So anyone who wants to go ahead and contact you guys and find out more about how they can perform better in their sport, they can head on to the, head on down to the Hibble Center. Yep. Yep. I've, uh, we've had several from out of state. Um, I think the youngest I've tested is a 14 year old that they, uh, came out from the East coast. He was going to be doing a two or three week running camp at Crested Butte. They wanted to, mm -hmm. you know, take a look at his VO2 peak, um, see what he could do. Very gifted runner, um, at a fort as a, as a 14 year old and, you know, ways to improve it um, for the upcoming high school or junior high, high school um, track or cross country running season. Um, and this is, this is super fun because one of the things that we've tried to do on this show is highlight some of the community here in the Springs, especially around cycling. And anybody who rides here knows we've got amazing trails and opportunities, but the more resources like this, mm -hmm. where the Springs isn't merely a fun place to ride, it's actually a wonderful place to train. It is. These are the kind of things that sort of make the secret sauce that I think a lot of people don't know about. And that makes this pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, the Hibble Center is just one more spot for whether you're recovering from an injury, you're trying to prevent an injury. Um, and then again, just assessing where you are, how do you get better? Mm -hmm. um, so across the entire, you know, musculoskeletal physiology spectrum. All right. Well, I'm about to say what is going to be some of my last few words in this episode, because for those of you at home, buckle up, because it's about to get crazy. Between Michael's expertise in this and Josh's background in medicine, 
and sports in general, things are about to get ridiculously nerdy. <laughs> Before we really dive deep into the details of what all this is, Michael, why don't you give us a brief overview of specifically the VO2 max test and the lactate threshold test that we performed on Josh. Talk generally about what this is, and then later, we're just going to go right down the rabbit hole. All right. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so, so one of the, the big tests that we look at is uh, VO2 max. And uh, for those of you that heard the first podcast, we talked about that as being one of the key indicators of how good of an ath athlete, endurance athlete you can be. Um, certainly, there are other things that come into play, but if you're looking at the very elite level, mm -hmm. that's a requirement to being, you know, on the podium or, you know, earning a medal. And so VO2 max is the maximal amount of oxygen, volume of oxygen that you can deliver and utilize at the level of the muscle. So, okay. you know, we're sitting here around the table, we're breathing in air. 21% of that air is oxygen. That doesn't change whether we go up or down in altitude. Mm -hmm. The partial pressure changes how concentrated that oxygen is in the air. But that air is going into our lungs. The oxygen is then getting extracted out of our lungs into our bloodstream um, at the capillaries in our lungs. Um, and then being pumped by our heart to the exercising muscles. Again, not a whole lot of exercising muscles right now. Um, <laughs> no. But, uh, but that oxygen is then being extracted back out of the blood at the level of the muscle and um, ATP being produced, our energy source. Mm -hmm. And so as you exercise harder and harder, your breathing goes up, you're getting more air into your lungs, your heart rate goes up, it's pumping more blood to your lungs to pull that oxygen out, um, deliver it to the, uh, to the, the body parts, the, the muscles that are utilizing it. Um, and then your mitochondria, taking that oxygen, making energy that allows you to exercise at a harder and harder intensity. So at some point, you max out that system. And so that's what VO2 max is, is the, the, what is the peak amount, the total amount of oxygen that your body can utilize out of the air that you're breathing in. All right. So as the, the body is an efficient machine, we're looking for the point at which that efficiency declines. Right. So where you, you reach, reach peak, and then it starts falling back down. Exactly. Yep. And of course, that can change with training. Um, it's, I think we talked about it last, last time. It's somewhat genetically determined. There are some athletes, there's some individuals that have an incredibly high VO2 max that don't exercise. And, you know, they're just, those are the people that would be gifted endurance um, athletes. Um, and there's others that, that so badly want to be an endurance superstar and genetically, you know, they might just never be able to get there as far as what their VO2 peak mm -hmm. or, you know, what their VO2 max. So I, I keep on saying VO2 peak versus VO2 max is probably worth pointing out. So mm -hmm. VO2 max is the maximum amount of oxygen your body can consume. And so that's a measurement typically taken at sea level where partial pressure of oxygen is higher. You've got more oxygen in the air and so you can deliver more oxygen. Um, in Colorado, we can't really ever get a VO2 max value unless we test you in the altitude room and simulate sea level. Um, and so we refer to it as VO2 peak because we know, so it's your, your peak value you can achieve at this altitude, but we know if we took you to sea level, it'd be higher. So, so I may say VO2 peak or max interchangeably, mm -hmm. um, but in, um, at altitude, it's uh, really referred to as VO2 peak. All right. So 
like many things, you know, many systems, as Josh pointed out, it's a complex system. There are, you know, you can look at the whole chain, but that won't necessarily show you what the weakest link is. And in this sense, if somebody's hitting a wall in training, is VO2 max like one way to look at it and say, all right, where are you, where are you hitting your limitation? Is it because you're not getting enough oxygen or you're not using it efficiently efficiently or that sort of a thing or. Yeah. So VO2 peak. um, So by doing the testing, um, you kind of get to look at the overall health of the cardiorespiratory system. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, during like Josh's test, you know, we're measuring. um, So we know how much oxygen and carbon dioxide is coming in. We're measuring your ventilation. You know, how many liters per minute are you breathing in, in air? Um, And then, but we're also measuring your expired carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide and oxygen levels. We're knowing how much is making it into your system. Um, And then you're also measuring heart rate, you know, and so, you're, you're looking at the blood, um, you know, how quickly, how, how efficiently is your heart pumping um, that uh, oxygenated blood to your muscles, and then at the level of the muscle, how much is being utilized. Um, so, so VO2 max is kind of like determining how big is your engine, if we use a car analogy. Mm-hmm. And again, you can swap out, you know, with training, you can keep putting in a bigger engine and a bigger engine. Um, the other part that is important to keep in mind for, for sports is you've got your lactate threshold. So you can have a big engine, but if your lactate threshold, um, which is separate from VO2, uh, VO2 max, um, that's the point where you are now working so hard that your, your body's producing, uh, it's utilizing more ATP, more energy than it can produce aerobically with oxygen. Um, so, so to make up for that difference, your body produces it anaerobically byproduct is lactic acid. Um, everyone's felt the burning in their legs, um, Mm -hmm. you know, after like hard sprints, um, that's that lactic acid. And once that level gets up at a certain point, it kind of shuts you down. Um, and so I kind of (laughs) the, uh, again, another analogy would be like, you've got your engine that can maybe push out say 600 horsepower, but you also have your RPM gauge. And if you hit the red line at 3,000 RPMs, you're really only using 500 of those 600 horsepower. You know, you Mm -hmm. only use it a certain percentage of your VO2 peak. And so by testing both, you can also determine kind of how big is your engine right now. And also where does that red line occur and how can you shift that red line further to the right? So you're now using 80 or 85% of your VO2 peak while you're exercising without that lactic acid shutting you down. So for the gearheads out there who do love cars, they talk about that term power band where, yeah, you've got your RPMs from zero to however many, and you've got however many horsepowers in the engine, just flat. But there's that portion where at these optimal RPMs with this gear ratio, this is the best power output for that engine. The VO2 max is basically about figuring out whether you can push that power band around and how to perform inside it when you find it. Right. Yeah. I would say, yeah. So where you can maximize your aerobic performance and be able to sustain that effort for minutes or hours mm. versus, you know, without having uh, the lactic acid shut you down. All right. I imagine how, how beneficial that information would be in a race setting where you know that this is my heart rate number or this is my power number that correlates with what this, this time is going to be. So if I'm out for two, three, four hours, you know, I want to stay at the highest level without pushing beyond into that red line and getting my, my lactate level to, to bump up. Right. 
Yeah, because so every time you go above that lactate level, it's kind of like, I mean, we talk about burning matches, you know, all the time. Mm -hmm. So that's when you're going above your lactic acid threshold, you're basically burning a match. Mm -hmm. And there's only, you know, some people have a bigger matchbook than others, but you only have so many matches. So, right. um, so yeah, that's a key thing with, uh, I mean, especially uh, the long, I mean, I've been doing a lot of the longer distance gravel racing. And um, my new gravel bike has, it's the first bike I've had that has a power meter. And so being able to keep it below my lactate threshold and know every time, you know, like on the Wahoo, you know, you can set it and it shows you different colors, you mm -hmm. know, and it's got your green band when you're still below your lactate threshold and it goes mm -hmm. to yellow and red and like, okay, I'm burning a match as I'm going up this hill, but I think it's worth it because I'm going to sprint by these other guys or I'm going to gap you know, up to the next group, um, and then back, back down to get back below my lactate threshold, recover, and know that I can keep that pace, you know, for another couple hours if I need to. Oh, so, yeah, wild. so it's, yeah, for, for that sort of racing, you know, if you want to be really, uh, methodical about it, um, this sort of testing is, I think, critical. The more you can know yourself, the better you can strategize. Yeah. Some people don't want to do that, though, and, and I get that as well. I mean, I, uh, I resisted getting a power meter for the longest time, and it just happened to come with this other bike, and now I'm like, wow, it's all this. I mean, as a scientist, of course, I like data, but um, I maybe, maybe that's why I've shunned away from it. Personally, I like to just go <laughs> by feel, but I'm kind of starting to nerd out more about, uh, like, mm -hmm. okay, yeah, this... I'm going to be pushing this many watts at this point in the race. This is where I'm going to burn a match. This, you know. Yeah. So it's, it's always good to have more information, right? I mean, Usually, you, can, you can always decide to, to ignore it, but, you know, by having the information, it just, it can make you race that much smarter. And real quick before we dive in deeper, is that kind of what it boils down to once you've done the test, you've done all the analyses, and you've looked at the training, what you're really giving someone is the ability to know, like Josh said, these watts this heart rate and you're just looking at those two numbers and you know where your cap is on either of those before you start burning matches so you get a lot more than just I mean, that you get more and, than that and i but... should mention that um so i do most of the i do all the testing at the hibble center a lot the majority of the athletes i work with already have a coach um and so like the file that i sent to you um, ideally it would go to you and it would go to your coach and the coach would be looking through this and they would be using that data to then tweak your training plan. Like, okay, it looks like, you know, we need to do more sessions at this heart rate or this wattage, you know, or, or, you know, your VO2 max looks great. VO2 peak looks great, but you know, you're hitting your, your lactate thresholds at 75% and we can bump that up to 80%. So, you know, I'm going to have you do these additional workouts right at or below LT so that we can bump those numbers up so that you can use that extra 5% without, you know, overloading your system with lactic acid. Um, and so, so the majority of the folks, like, so again, the file I sent, uh, Josh is, um, there's some very useful information in there, but there's also a lot of raw data. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's other, uh, like for an add-on consultation fee, I, I can take over that piece if, if I'm working with someone that doesn't have a coach. Yeah. Um, and provide those additional things where we go straight into like, these are the training zones. These are, you know, um, at these, at this heart rate, this is how many calories you're burning per hour. And this is your fat versus, um, carbohydrate substrate utilization percentages. And, 
you know, this is what you, you know, for longer races, this is what you're burning. So this is what you need to be trying to take in on the bike to be able to sustain, you know, this 140 mile race that you're going to be doing. Yeah. Um, and so there's, there's just a plethora of information mm-hmm. that's available. And, um, my primary goal is just to measure it and give it to the coach, but, but we have the capability to, to go beyond that as well. All right. Before we get super deep down, why don't you just give us a real quick overview of exactly how the test is run and just how murderous this test is or isn't. Okay. Cause I think most of us in the cycling world, if you've done any test at all related to your performance, it's probably just an FTP, which some of us are okay with. And some of us would rather take a sharp stick in the eye. Yeah. And, and so, and it's worth pointing out that the FTP test is basically trying to get you some of the same information. You know, what is your, your lactic acid threshold that you, you know, what, what effort can you sustain for an hour? Um, and to be able to do that, it's going to be right below the upper level of your LT. Um, and so, uh, and there's and there's a lot of other measurements like um, I mean Garmin. There's a bunch of um, devices that can estimate your VO2 peak. Um, some of them will do a pretty good job. Some of them, for some individuals, are terrible. Mm-hmm. And I think we <laughs> maybe talked about this before, mm. but um, you know, I again a good analogy is uh, there's this the old equation: 220 minus your age is your max heart rate. Right. You know, so I'm 50 years old. 220 that puts me at 180. I couldn't hit a max heart rate of 180 as a college student, much less now. Yeah. Um, and so for me, that equation does not work well at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's other individuals that are my age that will have a max heart rate well above what 220 minus their age is. Um, but again, you get a thousand people in the room, you do a max test on them, find out what their max heart rate is, you average it, 220 minus their age is, is a good average value for a large group um so you have the same problem with a lot of the vo2 max measurements like uh um i had a guy in the lab uh the other day and he's like oh that that test i mean it's within a you know one ml per kg of what my garmin said i had i was like well that's awesome because you know that that you're you know that equation works well for you and so you can probably save yourself some time and money you don't need to come back here to get retested after you have um, you know, done three months of training and hopefully mm-hmm. improve that m- number because hopefully that estimate will be pretty good for you. Um, but again, for others, it, it's way off. Yeah. All right. So what is the test? How, what does somebody expect if they're going to walk in there and they're, they're like, it's time for me to know. What are they walking into? Okay. Yeah. No, we're sharing actual data. Are you? Sure. Yeah. That's totally fine. Okay. Yeah. Nothing so, to hide. So, um, so we always, with the VO2max test, we're going to, um, it's going to be somewhat individualized to mm-hmm. the person, you know, based on their training level. Um, I've ridden with uh, Josh plenty to know that, uh, that he could handle a 30-watt jump for each stage. Um, there's others yes, that I... <laughs> that would be, you know, test would be over way too quick. Mm-hmm. Um, but the but, big picture, you yeah, put so the, somebody on a bike. Yeah, so big picture, you're going to come mm-hmm. into the lab. Um, you're going to put on a heart rate monitor. Uh, we're going to make sure that the... Uh, the mask that you wear is going to fit you appropriately. Uh, so you've got a good seal around your mouth, uh, nose and mouth. Um, and then uh, if we're doing it on the bike, we can also, like I said, do it on the treadmill. Um, any way you could exercise, we could do this test. Um, but right now it's primarily treadmill and bike. Um, so we got Josh on the bike. 
um, get the bike adjusted to him um, so that it fits um, hopefully identical to the bike that he's going to be riding or racing later in the year. Mm. It's a very um, fancy bike, by the way. Yeah, it is a really very, fancy yeah, bike. It's kind of expensive. It probably doesn't corner well. No, it, it's, <laughs> it's heavy just to move <laughs> into the, the altitude room when people want to take a, do a test at sea level. But um, yes, yeah, so we get the bike set up so that, so that it's mm-hmm. identical to his setup because we don't want, you know, the seat to be too high, too low. I mean, because then you got, you're throwing in mechanical differences from what you're used to. And that, that's going to, it's not going to change your VO2 peak, but it's going to adjust your values. It's not going to be, the data we're giving you is not going to be as useful for you being on your own bike. So we want to try to replicate the setup that you normally would have, whether you're on a mountain bike or road bike. Um, and then uh, you can get a, a, a brief warm up on the bike, you know, and again, for, uh, for the subjects, the customers that come in that are my age, that takes a little bit longer, um, <laughs> you know, to get kind of warmed up. Um, and uh, once we start the test, uh, the mask is put on, you're hooked up to the, the, the metabolic cart. And we're measuring, um, as I mentioned, uh, it's measuring your every, every time you breathe in and out, it's measuring your ventilation. So in liters per minute, it's me- measuring the uh, oxygen being expired and the carbon dioxide being expired. And because we know what the oxygen and carbon, carbon dioxide is in the room already, um, you know, it can do the math and determine how much oxygen you're actually utilizing. Um, so test starts, starts out very easy. Um, and in Josh's case, uh, we started at 80 watts for a warm up, I believe. Um, and then it bumps up to uh, 100 watts. Mm-hmm. And basically, um, if we were doing just a VO2 max test, um, every about one and a half to two minutes, and again, we're going to vary it depending on the subject and their level of fitness. Um, every one and a half to two minutes, it's going to jump up by anywhere from 15 to 30 watts. So in Josh's case, we, we were jumping by 30 watts. So um, he went from 100 watts, and then next stage was at 130, mm-hmm. 160, 190. Right, yeah. And the bike will just keep on getting harder, and you just go as long as you can until volitional exhaustion. And, and the goal is that, again, we're measuring VO2 peak, uh, the amount of oxygen your body's using, and it also should be increasing as the uh, workload is increasing until you hit that peak value, which in Josh's case, um, at 310 watts, um, he hit a peak uh, VO2 max. Let me pull up my... While you're looking for that, I'm just going to state for the fact, for the record, that uh, I'm just going to begin using the term volitional exhaustion more often in my riding. (laughs) Did you quit? No, that was volitional exhaustion. Exactly. You know? Um, Yeah. So, so in Josh's case, um, and we looked at, uh, so the one minute average um, at 310 watts, he was pushing uh, just over 53, he was using 53 milliliters of oxygen per kilogram body weight per minute. Um, and in fact, at the 30 second average, it was uh, 54.6. Oh. So, oh. Um, so hit the peak value at 310 watts, made mm-hmm. it all the way through that stage, and then jumped up. It went up to, uh, so from 310 to 340. And I think you lasted for over a minute, close to two minutes before the cadence started slowing down. And of course, once the cadence on any of those bikes, as the cadence slows down, that means that the... Uh, the workload has to kind of increase to compensate. So very quickly, the test you know, <laughs> is over. Volitional yeah. exhaustion. <laughs> um, but so that was an awesome test because that's actually the gold standard. You know, like if we see 
VO2, the, the person's VO2 value go up, continue to go up all the way to the end of the test, and then they stop. You know, we graph it out and it's a linear, you know, line going up. We have to beg, the, it begs the question, well, had you lasted into the next stage, would it have continued to go up? Would mm -hmm. it have plateaued? Would it have dropped down? In Josh's case, so he went to 340 watts, went for another two minutes, VO2, VO2 did not go up. It mm -hmm. actually, it plateaued and even dropped down a little bit. So you hit your max value at 310, you know, and all the rest of that, it was all lactic acid. You know, you were producing lactic acid. It was all, all the rest of that energy to go, to be pushing at 340 watts um, was coming from anaerobic metabolism, um, which, which we saw on the LT curve. Mm -hmm. You know, when we looked at your numbers and um, the last blood measurement we took, it was too high for the, 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 the device to record it. Um, it gave us the uh, um, over, over limit error. So not, not everyone can push the themselves. Yeah, not everyone right. can push themselves like that. So that is, that's ideally what we want to see because then we know for sure this is your VO2 peak. This is the, the maximum of oxygen. You push yourself as hard as you could. Um, there are other things we can look at. Um, that are very good indicators that that the person did push themselves hard enough, we, even though we didn't see that plateau. Um, and those include things like, uh, you know, how close was their heart rate to their age-predicted max heart rate? We already talked about there's, there are some issues with that because it, it can vary from person to person. Um, rating of perceived exertion, there's a 20-point a Borg scale that we use that you got to see and, you know, yell out what number. Point two or, yeah, 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 not at. <laughs> coordinated, yeah, with how you felt. Um, so an RPE of uh, 17 or above, which is, I believe it's like very, very hard or, you know, I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it tells you that you're pushing yourself typically right around or definitely above LT. That's another indicator of, a, uh, of achieving a VO2 peak, even if we didn't see that plateau. And then the third one is we look at um, the respiratory quotient. Um, and so that's something we can kind of dive into here a little bit later. But, mm -hmm. you know, as you start out exercising very easy, you're burning primarily fat. Most of your ATP, you're, you're breaking down fat. That's where your energy is coming from. As, uh, and the reason for that is, of course, we have weeks worth of fat stores, you know, and so why waste carbohydrates? Why waste our glycogen stores when we can utilize fat? But as you start exercising harder and harder, it's more efficient for your body to use carbohydrates. So you start transitioning over to, you know, using more carbohydrates and less fat as you're exercising at a higher intensity. Mm -hmm. um, eventually get to the point where you're burning pure carbohydrates Refl reflects on the data as an RQ or an RER value of 1.0. So 100% mm -hmm. carbohydrates. And then anything above that. So like, um, again, Josh's test, you were at the end, you're uh, 1.12. Um, so that tells us you're not only is your body burning pure carbs, but that extra 0.12, that energy, that ATP is coming from, again, non um, or anaerobic, anaerobic, yeah, anaerobic yeah. ATP production, um, and again, byproduct is the the lactic acid. And this is so just to paint a picture, like to step back for anybody and not to scare you off, who is thinking about this. What we've discussed is you start out pedaling a bike, which is fine, but at the end of it, what you're doing is you're pedaling as hard as you possibly can with people in the room screaming at you to not stop pedaling as you're wearing a mask that is hindering your breathing. Michael is pricking your fingers to get blood for the lactate threshold test and making you nod at a clipboard as to how miserable you are. And the answer is very, very miserable. 
And and at that point in the test, you're probably also thirsty and your throat is dry and you can't drink any water. So Because you got a mask on. Because you have a mask on. So if that sounds like a great way to spend your Thursday, <laughs> come on down. Yeah. But I, I will say as someone that's raced a lot, and I think you, or maybe it was the one of the last customers I had, they're like, it didn't hurt. I mean, it hurts at the moment, mm-hmm. but almost invariably, everyone I've tested, like within 15 to 30 seconds after the test, after they've caught their breath after the 340 watts is off the bike and they're getting to spin easily at, you know, um, 80 watts again or 40 watts or whatever, we're kind of a recovery. They're like, oh, I think I could have gone a little bit longer. It, right. it wasn't that bad. So it's, you know, the pain is temporary. Right. Um, and, and if you have raced long enough, you've probably pushed yourself as hard or harder during a race than you would in one of these tests without getting all that data. Right. Right. And you get a lot out of it. I, you know, I will say you are uh, a phenomenal motivator just standing there saying things very subtly. You know, you weren't loud. You weren't yelling. You're were just saying things like, you know, this is going to be over. Are you going to, are you going to give it all? You, <laughs> how are you going to finish? Yeah. yeah. The, the one I always leave. use is the, the, the finish lines at the top of the hill. It's in sight, but you're not there yet. Yeah. Yeah. I was attending you're this. You're doing t- the sprint to the finish. You got a couple people ahead of you. You can catch them. Yeah. I was attending this test and not being miserable like Josh. And it was pretty hilarious to track how many times uh, Michael said, yeah, you're doing the sprint. The finish line is right ahead. That went on for like seven minutes. <laughs> well, and I should have known with Josh that that he was going to be able to push himself a lot harder than the typical person. So that yeah. was the other thing. So, so what I mentioned going through the VO2 max test, which is the you know, you can do it without the lactate threshold. Right. We can add in the lactate threshold piece, which gives you yet another really nice piece of data. Um, we can kind of estimate where we think your lactate threshold is with the VO2 max data. But if mm-hmm. if we're not actually, you know, pricking your finger every four minutes mm-hmm. and taking, you know, actually measuring the, uh, the molal, you know, the, the blood lactic acid concentration in your blood and then being able to graph it out later, uh, we can't say for sure where it is. Um, so if we do the VO2 max test with the lactate threshold test, then we actually, we have to make sure that e- each stage, each of those 30 watt stages that you achieve steady state. So if we're looking at just VO2 max, that test can typically be over within eight to 12 minutes. Sorry to be telling you this. Now. <laughs> it, it hurts just as much. You just sure. ramping up much faster. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if we, um, if we want to get good lactic acid threshold data, then we need to make sure that you, you know, so you hit. 210 watts and your body's adjusted to 210 watts you've mm-hmm. reached a new steady state that's when we want to do the finger stick so so each of those one to two minute stages is now a four minute stage and we give you three minutes at each stage before we do the finger stick so that we're getting in the last minute of that stage getting the blood measurement and then yeah. we bump it up to the next one so it ends up being you know three times longer of a test mm-hmm. um, which as a cyclist is not too big of a deal if we're measuring a VO2 max on a runner who happens to be like a 400 meter sprinter, oh, um, that's just it evil. becomes, yeah. So, I mean, I let them know like this, you know, it's going to be a much longer event, mm-hmm. you know, 12 minute versus 40 minutes running if you're, you know, more of a sprinter. That sounds brutal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It sounds terrible. So, and of course, in the sprinter, if you're doing that, your VO2 max is not, you know, as big of a factor as mm-hmm. your anaerobic system because that's what's you know fueling you for most of that right 100 anaerobic yeah all right so now that we've got the general picture painted and we know what this data does and what you're going to do with it why don't you gentlemen go straight down into the weeds 
Josh, I know you lined out a whole bunch of questions now that you've got data in hand. Yeah. And, and maybe before you jump into that, so, so we'll just, so what we learned from the test is, so first of all, your VO2 peak was um, rated as superior, you know, for I like that um, word. Yeah, men, um, you know, your age, um, height, weight. Um, and so like the normal value, um, and I think this is probably for Americans, I mean, definitely we're not talking athletes, would be 36.9. And again, your 32nd average was closer to 54 and a half. 54 and a bit, yeah. Um, so, so great VO2 peak. Um, and then when we look at the LTP, so clearly you can push yourself way harder than most, which, which is again, obvious Any to anyone that knows yeah, Josh. I mean, anybody anyone who's can, ridden with you know, him knows that. That can Everest, that can do a, a century around a... Uh, uh, around a roundabout, a roundabout <laughs> this right. man knows I mean, how to suffer that was less physical pushing more yeah. mental <laughs> and so you know but that's equally important with i mean so so much of we talked again about it last time so vo2 peak is a key thing but there are plenty of people that have perhaps a slightly lower vo2 peak in a ta in a in a race that it comes down to tenacity and how much can you suffer and certainly being able to deal with a higher level of lactic acid um can put you still across the finish line in front of people that had a higher you know or more aerobically fit than you in the sense that they have a higher vo2 peak so yeah so it was a great test it was fun to test you um thank you i've done thousands um with cadets and and that's maybe where that motivation piece comes through because at that age you don't really know how to push yourself you know as a college age student you don't know maybe just how hard you can go yet. Hmm. Yeah. It's encouraging to hear. <laughs> um, I, I know you, you're diving a little bit into it, but I was wondering, uh, you mentioned that I, I met three out of four criteria for the test being legit. Uh, were those the criteria you were talking about just a yeah. moment ago? Yep. So the, the gold standard for us knowing for sure it was a valid test is seeing that plateau. Mm -hmm. The fact that you hit your peak value for VO2 at 310 watts, and then you we had you know 30 more watts to the bike. You're pushing 340 watts. You did it for two minutes, and your VO2 peak did not go up. Mm -hmm. Had if you had a higher VO2 peak, it would have kept going up. You know, so when we graph it out and we see that, you know, you hit your peak value before you hit your peak stage, we know for sure it was a valid test. Um, the other three criteria that we look at is, again, um, max heart rate, um, respiratory quotient, and um, your RPE. And so, again, you hit an RPE above 17, at or above 17, your heart rate was within 10 beats of age-predicted max. Mm -hmm. um, the only thing that you didn't hit was your max RER, which probably, again, goes back to the fact that your body can just handle lactic acid way better than, than uh, many people, mm -hmm. um, or that, you know, you could push yourself um, a little bit harder. And so... Those other three are, we, we don't even, if we see that plateau, we don't e really even need to look at the other three criteria. Um, those are the ones we look at if we are in question as to whether, you know, if we see the, that you hit your peak value at also the peak stage and we're questioning, well, had we, had you lasted three more minutes into one more stage, would it have kept going up or going down? Um, we don't have to question that because we saw what happened. Here's, uh, here's plateaued. That's great to know. Um. Yeah, well, it's, it's not, nice to know that all those sprint intervals over the years have, have paid off, at least on the lactate side of things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, what really interests me in this is 
you know, being in the medical world, um, I see people on ventilators all the time and people with elevated lactate all the time and how, how it correlates. I mean, it's, it's so interesting to see the overlap with high performance athletics and someone who is on their deathbed, essentially, um, incredibly ill. Right. And how a lot of those values are similarly measured and we use them for different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on, on one end where, where your focus is being able to take these values and push people, uh, maximizing all of those mm-hmm. contributing elements, you know, so you maximize VO2 peak. Yeah. Um, yeah. Th- so people like COPD, um, people that you're measuring that have, I mean, they're at rest, they have elevated lactic acid. I mean, so a lot of, again, it goes back to that same, you know, aerobic endurance type system is, mm-hmm. so if there's a, an issue at the level of the lung and you're not able to get the oxygen out of the air across those alveolar, you know, in the alveolar sacs into the capillaries, then they're not getting enough oxygen at the level of the muscle, which again means that the muscle, they're, they're having to rely on um, anaerobic metabolism byproduct lactic acid mm-hmm. to get enough ATP just to maybe breathe or, you know, to walk down the hall. Yeah. Um, again, heart rate, you know, if, if there's something going on with the heart, your, um, your stroke volume is limited or the ejection fraction is off. And so again, you know, every time your heart is beating, you're not getting a good perfusion of blood to the tissue, the metabolically active tissue. Um, again, anaerobic metabolism is your body's the only other way to, to get the energy that it needs. So, so any sort of a breakdown along that entire cardiorespiratory system can result in some of the same things that we are seeing at the end of a VO2 peak test, but it's happening, happening at rest or at low levels of activity because of an issue with Mm -hmm. that, you know, specific body part or parts. Well, and this is actually maybe an interesting point to ask a total novice like layman's question a lot of guys that i know and i've said the same thing myself uh in any kind of athletics but we'll say cycling you go out with somebody and you might hear at the top of a hill like oh man my lungs are killing me my legs feel fine or you hear somebody say man i don't know what's going on my lungs feel great but my legs are dead what is there any correlation there or is there any rea- like any way to understand if you're a cyclist and you're out there and you feel like your lungs don't hurt you feel like you can breathe fine but your legs just are not responding is that because there is not enough oxygen in them coming from your blood or is there just so many other factors that when people say those generalized remarks of how they perceive their body responding yeah, you just so don't I'd, really I'd know i'd say that there's probably a, a lot of potential things going on there yeah. um so the out of all of those components, you know, we talked about, I mean, you got your lungs, your bloodstream, the blood in your bloodstream, your heart, um, and then the mitochondria at the level of the muscles, all those components, the lung is continue, is considered to be overbuilt. Like that, mm-hmm. that is almost never the limiting factor for VO2 math. That is not true as we go up in altitude. But usually, you know, if you measure someone's VO2 max um, or VO2 peak, and then you put them on a training plan and they come back, you know, couple months later and the VO2 peak has gone up, it's because of no change. No, so there's not been any changes at the level of the lung. 
Mm -hmm. but it's it's going to be at the level of the heart. You know, so you get chronic changes at the level of the heart. Uh, your heart has um, atrophy, atrophy, um, hypertrophy. Sorry, thank you. Atrophy would be bad. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So hypertrophy. So um, and especially the left ventricle tends to get. Um, so and it, we should point out that there's two different. So hypertrophy for endurance athletes typically means that the left ventricle ends up getting larger. Mm -hmm. um, and so it gets, and so the left ventricle is the one that is pumping the oxygenated blood to the rest of your body. So that's the one that gets affected the most. And so um, you end up with a larger stroke volume. So every time your heart beats, it's pumping out more blood and it's also pumping it out more effectively. So, you know, it's the heart is not a hundred percent efficient. It's not like we squeeze every single ounce of blood out mm -hmm. with every beat. Right. So, um, but the ejection fraction is, so that's how much of it is actually making it out of the heart. So the oxygenated blood is not left in the heart for the next beat and the next beat. So that's, so, so for endurance athletes, you get, um, increase in stroke volume, um, increase in ejection fraction. You also get, um, erythropoiesis. So you actually are making more red blood cells. So that again, you have more carriers for that oxygen. Angiogenesis, uh, you bodies laying down more highways for that blood to travel. So, you know, capillaries um, going into the level of the muscle. And then mitochondrial adaptions where, you know, more places, more factories, if you will, to take that oxygen and make ATP, make the energy that you need. Mm -hmm. And so those are, all of those mm -hmm. adaptions occur chronically with training, but the lung is, is never thought to be a limiting factor for, again, sea level testing. And this would be a great jumping off point to describe something that you talked about before we started the show, which was amazing. What happens to the lungs and how do they perform as you go up and what can go wrong? Yeah. So, and yeah, so going back to your, so the lung, I mean, unless you're they're racing at altitude, you know, if they're saying that they're having trouble breathing, it's probably, it's not maybe the lung per se, unless mm -hmm. it's, unless it's, um, again, they're racing at altitude. Yeah. So the, uh, I mean, the lungs are amazing because it, it, so the, you know, if you take a look at the alveolar sacs, which is the, like a thin balloon, that's where the air that you breathe in ultimately gets to, and the oxygen mm -hmm. goes across this very, very thin layer into the bloodstream, the surface area of your lungs is about equivalent to a tennis court. Mm -hmm. Huge surface area. I mean, when you think about, you know, yeah. Yeah. how much, you know, for, for such a small organ, you know, how much space there is there. The lung is always trying to maximize ventilation to perfusion. Mm -hmm. Lungs, obviously, if I'm sitting here, gravity is going to have an effect as I'm breathing air in, there's perhaps going to be more air at the top of the lung than the bottom of the lung, but the, there's going to be more blood at the bottom of the lung, right? Because gravity is kind of preventing, it's making mm -hmm. it harder for the blood to go towards the upper part of the lung. Um, so the lung adapts by, um, again, it's trying to maximize ventilation to perfusion. It wants to get as, if there's a section of the lung that has the most air, it wants to get the blood to that section of the lung. Um, so in the case, like sitting here, a lot of the capillaries in my lungs at the bottom are going to be constricted so that it's forcing more blood up to the upper half and hopefully distributing that blood equally across the lungs so that we can take advantage of that full tennis court size surface area mm -hmm. and maximize how much oxygen is getting extracted. And that so, process is shunting. Yeah, shunting would be, yeah. Uh, so, you know, and, it, and it'll change if I'm lying down. Again, gravity is going to affect it differently. Mm -hmm. So the lung is always trying to, to maximize that combination of air to blood to, to get the most oxygen possible. And, and so for that reason, the lung's thought to be overbuilt. 
the problem is as you go up in altitude, you know, you get areas that um, of the lung that become hypoxic. And so, you know, the lung does what it's supposed to do. It's trying to shunt blood to the, um, the more ventilated areas. But as you go higher and higher up, you know, the entire lung is kind of can, is restricted, which is why, you know, when we go to like an extreme level, we end up with um, high altitude pulmonary edema. You know, the entire, all of the capillaries are trying to shunt blood to a better spot, and there is no better spot. And so all of that shunting is causing the, uh, the plasma basically to leak out of, you know, it's being forced out of the capillaries, and it's going into the lung tissue, and then, you know, it's going to end up causing a, um, a breathing issue if you don't get them back down to, to a lower altitude. Is, is some of that pressure related as well? where when you have a higher density of gases at lower elevation, you're able to uh, basically push more pressure into your lungs. And I, I just asked this because I've been studying all these gas laws right? and, and how it changes. And it's mm -hmm. been a while since I've looked yeah. at all those. And Henry's in particular is all about you know, your pressure gradient across a membrane and how that will, that will essentially cause uh, further diffusion in different ways. Yeah, so, so you'll definitely, there's definitely those changes. Um, as you go down or up in altitude. Um, but then the bigger one is also just the um, partial pressure of oxygen. The fact that, you know, as I take a deep breath in, I'm getting less molecules of oxygen mm -hmm. and carbon dioxide and nitrogen per breath than I, at, at altitude than I would at sea level. Um, uh, so uh, so there's, a, there's a lot going on, but, um, but the bottom line is kind of uh, the fact that the lung for most people, is not going to be a limiting factor until you go up in altitude, um, yeah. and then and then it can become an issue. And then there's again a genetic, you know. So some individuals happen to have bigger, you know, more robust lungs that can do a better job at altitude than those at sea level. And and if mm -hmm. we look at like the extreme example, um, the uh, a lot of the Sherpas that you know do the the trips up in the um, you know K two Everest. For generations, they've been living there, and they're known to be barrel-chested. Their lungs are just so overbuilt, so much bigger than, you know, typical Caucasian European. And mm -hmm. it's one of the reasons that they probably perform much better at altitude is that they don't have these same ventilation to perfusion issues or not to the same extent as, you know, the typical, you know, lowlander, I and would say. If I'm not mistaken, we might have to cut this if I'm wrong. <laughs> There's a similar physiological adaptation to native, I believe it's Bolivians and some Peruvians as well. So um, many of those uh, countries also, I mean, yeah, they have indigenous populations that, you know, have, that are living at or above 10,000 feet. Um, and have been for centuries. And have been for centuries. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, you know, if we, uh, I don't know if it's occurred yet, but I mean, I think at some point you could go and look at Leadville natives and we would be able to see the same sort of thing happening, you know, if it's generationally, we were, you know, these are families that were able to live here because they didn't have medical complications as they got older because their lungs were overbuilt. Mm, and, yeah. you know, that continues, you know, kind of gets passed down. Now, would that adaptation affect a VO2 max or would the, would the rates still be the same? They just, they don't change as much because of the adaptation. Yeah. So, so someone like, so if we were to test we were to bring one of the Sherpas in. Mm -hmm. um, so what we would see is, so the VO2 max is at sea level is going to be whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But as they go up in altitude, they're going to have less of a decrease. 
I see. So their VO2 peak their VO2 would peak. relatively stay higher yeah. than you or I, even though the max numbers might not be that far off right. to begin yeah. with. Yeah, and so I, um, I, I lucky, my uh, father, who was a physician, is, would always, when he was scratching my back as a kid, he's like, you've got huge lungs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it turns out for me, as I go up in altitude, I'm less affected as well. Um, I, I think we talked about it last podcast. I, I always race better at altitude. And mm-hmm. the higher, the better. I got to do a VO2 max test, a VO2 peak test on top of Pike's Peak. Talk about a, uh, <laughs> a fun experience. What was that about, like, three and a half minutes? Or <laughs> No. It was, I mean, so you, again, so we have to tailor the test. We, we need yeah. to make sure it lasts at least eight to 12 minutes. Because okay. if it's three minutes, mm-hmm. you won't be warmed up enough. <laughs> yeah. you, you know, you don't have the body going. If we go too long, so, you know, 40 minutes seems like a long test. As a cyclist, maybe not. But as you... You know, if you, we had a runner in there and you're trying to test VO2 peak and we're going so slow, or cyclists, if we had you doing 15 watts, it would have taken you twice as long to hit 340 watts. Yeah. And mm-hmm. during that time, you would have gotten dehydrated. You know, you're, right. you're losing plasma volume, which means your blood's getting more concentrated, which is affecting delivery of oxygen. You know, so, so all of those things, you know, I mean, there's a lot going on, you know, but you know, your blood's more viscous and so your heart's having to work harder. So, so the sweet spot for a VO2 max test, you know, is eight to 12 minutes. And -hmm. if we're trying to get lactate, we, we have to extend that out enough to get good data for the lactate threshold curve without hopefully compromising too much of the, the VO2 peak value. Sorry, we no, kind of we just amazing. turned the corner exactly there. exactly what we were hoping for out yeah. of this episode. Yeah, but so to go back to it, so um, so if we take... Do you remember how much your peak dropped from, say, 6,000 feet here to 14? Uh, it was... Uh, let me think. I was still in the upper 60s up there. I don't know what I was... I'm trying to remember what my test was at that point. I mean, it was, it was maybe 10%, but... The expected would be closer to like eighteen to twenty percent wow. of a drop. So, wow. Yeah, of a drop. So, so again, that, that's that. Um, you know, so so based on your lung becoming a limiting factor, how much of a limiting factor it becomes as you go up in altitude varies from person to person. So, and where you said earlier that you race better at altitude, what you meant was you don't race better than you at I, a lower altitude. You race better relatively than other, other athletes at the same altitude. Right. Yep. So this is a really interesting point because one of the things we've been trying to tease out um, and in the video that we're going to be releasing or, or may have already, depending when this airs, you know, we asked a lot about how do coaches use this data? That would actually be a data point that we haven't talked about yet is right. that when you look at this, if you were to do a couple of these at different altitudes or simulate them in the altitude chamber that you guys have over at Hibble, yep. you would actually have as an athlete, maybe a better understanding of well, great, I can race this in Indiana, but if I'm going to go do Leadville, which is at altitude, right. looking at your own data, you could have a little bit of an expectation of where you might move in a field of similar athletes. Yeah, not only where you might move, but also how to custom tailor your training for that particular event. All right, so let's talk about that right there. Let's okay. talk about using this data. Like, we'll take Josh's for an example if we can. And try to set up how you would use this data to move some of these numbers. Okay. Yeah. And I would probably, for that specifically, we'll have to, would have to look at it in a little more detail than I, than I have, haven't we, since we did the test a little in bit In a ago. general sense. In a general sense. Like you take, like, we've got a number 
in exactly which minute he hit that RQ, that quotient of one, right. where he was fully burning carbs. Yep. That's the sort of number that one could move one way or another, correct? Or at least play with. You could, yeah. So it, it would change without, so if we were to bring you back into the lab, um, I mean, and you wouldn't even have to do, so we've done this without doing a VO2 peak test. We actually just steady state exercise. This is what we actually did with um, Jesse Diggins. Mm -hmm. Steady state exercise, and we started her at basically simulated sea level and took her all the way up to, I think, I think we stopped at about 12,000 feet and kind of seeing how your VO2 values respond, how your heart rate responds. So we could do something like that, or you repeat the max test at simulated sea level and then, you know, higher elevation, 10,000 feet, and we can see exactly how much does it go up in percentage, how much does it drop as we go to higher altitude. Um, and then kind of looking at the, uh, you know, correlations and the dynamics between like heart rate, wattage, LT, and kind of focusing on, you know, what is it that we, that you should do to best prepare for that. A lot of it, I mean, like if you're going in sea level, going down to sea level, we talked about it, it's mm -hmm. doing high intensity training at sea level because the limiting factor if we're living at altitude, but we go to sea level, the, the limiting factor, get, it becomes the level of the muscles. You know, we've gone down altitude. We are legally blood boosted because we've been living at altitude. Right. So, yeah. and now we're at sea level, there's partial pressure. You know, we've got tons of oxygen. We're delivering tons of oxygen, you know, through the lungs, um, through the bloodstream to the muscles. And the muscles just are like, I've never worked this hard. I've got, I'm overloaded with oxygen and I don't know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. um, so you would, you would uh, change it in that sense that you're doing more high intensity stuff with added oxygen to work those muscles and bring them up to, to where they're no longer the limiting factor. Um, if we go up in altitude the other way, you know, so we're going up in altitude probably is going to be, we'd have to, we'd really have to t take a look at it, but there, there would be s some change that we could look at that would maybe maximize your performance or a high altitude event um, based on your specific data, you know, where we try to tease out, this is probably the limiting factor. It mm -hmm. could be the lungs, in which case you can't do a whole lot about that. Uh, but there are, so there's a lot of devices you can use that don't work great for, for most athletes, but for altitude training, um, you know, it works a lot of the inspiratory and expiratory muscles. Mm -hmm. uh, so that sort of thing may be enough to make a difference you know, so the, the, the lungs are performing better. Um, and, then, and then obviously, as you go up in altitude, so the, the blood piece becomes important. So that's where the living high, sleeping high, you know, trying to increase that amount of red blood cell mass that you have so that you can compensate for that reduced partial pressure in oxygen and the less oxygen you're going to be taking in. So you can still hopefully deliver just as much oxygen to your exercising muscles, even though you're now at 10,000 feet versus... 6,000 feet. Mm -hmm. I, I love this. I love this. I, I have so many thoughts, so many questions, but the, uh, this idea of just how the body processes things. I mean, I, again, I think about it from a medical perspective. I wanted to ask you, well, since gas percentages don't change regardless of altitude, it's the partial pressure you keep mentioning. So yep. they become less dense and it's harder for us to get as much in with each breath. But the percentages don't shift. 21% right. is oxygen, yeah, sea level, and at 18,000 feet. Right. Uh, yeah. But 
from a medical perspective, you know, we're we're throwing 100% oxygen on our people, especially on ventilators. When you uh, you're able to dial that in completely, what the person is receiving. How does that change, or how would you perceive that to change a test like this? If if I had done it on 100% oxygen. Yeah. So numbers are going to go up for sure. Mm. I mean, it's that same thing as um, you know, if we test you at sea level. Um, at our altitude, that's equivalent of about a 20, 26 to 27% oxygen is what you're breathing in. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that's flooding the lungs, obviously, with more oxygen percentage-wise, which allows for a better exchange, you know, so more, more oxygen can get picked up by the blood. But like you were mentioning, even though there may be more oxygen, they, the body is not necessarily tuned to use that efficiently. Is that right? Uh, so... So at the level of the muscle, you mm -hmm. know, you've, so it comes down to, um, so how much oxygen can you get into the bloodstream mm. and then get delivered to the muscle and then the mitochondria, how quickly can they turn that oxygen over? Mm -hmm. So, you know, like if we look at like, the reason athletes dope, you know, is you increase the amount of blood, you increase the amount of uh, carrying capacity. If you have that increased amount because of altitude and now you add in more oxygen, because you've gone down to sea level or you're breathing a higher percentage. Again, you're delivering way more oxygen than what your body's used to. Um, so as long as the mitochondria can handle that turnover, then, you know, then your muscles can utilize it. And, and that's a piece that I, I don't, I didn't realize the, the amount of, well, the, so the mitochondrial network, like when mm -hmm. people go through basic biology, you know, I think they le learn, you know, the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell, right? And, you draw the diagram, you know, if you take a piece of paper, it's just this little circle, mm -hmm. you know, and that's where the ATP is made. Yeah. When you look at, um, under the microscope, you know, 3D images of the mitochondria, it's not like a single cell. I mean, in, in endurance aerobic athletes, I mean, it's like, it's like a hand wrapped around, you know, the, the muscle fibers and bloodstream. I mean, it's, it's this huge network of cells that are mm. you know maximizing like here's the oxygen feed it over atp to the muscles you know just uh it's it's incredible and so that's one of the other key areas that grows i mean we you know regardless of muscle um hypertrophy and things mm -hmm. like that i mean just the amount of growth and changes that occur at the level of the mitochondria um is huge and that's one of the one of the other big limiting factors to vo2 peak that changes with training mm -hmm. and these are like these chronic adaptations as you describe them are the sorts of things that take a long time and a lot of training to build right like you can't this would be the reason that people who have just been laying down base miles and slow base miles for thousands of miles for a decade have an advantage that somebody can't just off the couch you know, pop some EPO and do some heavy workouts in the gym for three months and be right there. Right, right. Yeah. So, I mean, going from being like a couch potato to deciding you want to be an athlete and blood boosting, you know, you, you, you still don't get any of the adaptations to the heart. You know, mm -hmm. you don't have the, the capitalization that an endurance athlete would have. Um, and then, yeah, changes at the level of the muscle and mitochondria. Um, and so, how long, I mean, so what chronic, what is chronic? I mean, mm -hmm. I think we're talking, I mean, you can see some adapt adaptations to some of those systems within weeks, but most of it, yeah, you're talking months to years. So 
and this is a, I, I asked this, this is totally anecdotal, but it's something that I've experienced and I know plenty of others, guys who get to a certain point in their life, like maybe their thirties, forties, or even early fifties, and life hands them a situation to say, you know what? You've got this one really great year. Maybe your kids finally just went to college or you mm-hmm. change jobs and guys will say, this is going to be the year that I'm going to race. I'm going to try it. I'm going to see how good I can be just because I want to know. And they get to the end of that year and they did some races and they're okay. And then they realize the next spring that they're even faster. And then they get caught because they're like, wait a minute, that was supposed to be my year to see how good I was. And now I'm better than that. Right. And is that because... That was the building year that you, you just laid down all these changes, physiological changes to your body that set you up for the next year. And so, and that's where like the endurance athletes that have been doing this for decades, like I have, I mean, you have a lot of that groundwork laid. Some changes, like changes at the level of the blood will, they dissipate pretty quickly. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, your body doesn't want to be pumping more blood than it has to if you're not using it. And certainly if you get dehydrated, you're at a bigger risk. And in fact, we see athletes all the time that, you know, blood doped um, have cardiac events because their blood got so thick because of, you know, the blood doping they did, they got dehydrated and their blood is like, jelly or whatever yeah yeah you know but um so those changes we know go away relatively quickly the uh again the study that one of the studies we did at the uh, air force academy where we were measuring total hemoglobin mass you know how much blood does this person have how many red blood cells do they have in their body in grams you know cadets at the academy at 7200 feet when they go back down to sea level for three weeks at winter break it's a there's a noticeable difference um, a significantly uh, decrease, a significant decrease in their total hemoglobin mass. Uh, you see it more in the freshmen, less so in the juniors and seniors, because again, the body's figured out, well, I don't want to get rid of all that blood because I know I'm going to go back up to altitude. I mean, this is kind of, mm-hmm. we don't know all the genetic pieces of it. We've tried to tease it out, but, but so that, so those sorts of adaptations can go away fairly quickly, but it also comes back fairly quickly. All those extra, you know, capillaries you've laid, mitochondria, I don't know that anyone has longitudinally looked at the changes of, you know, with training or without training, but, but just uh, knowing, you know, the, the amount of work that the body's gone to make new capillaries, you know, all the, you know, amino acids you had to take in and, you know, you're constructing all of this, these new highways. I'm guessing that most of that stays there. It's available. And so that's why athletes that have been doing this for years, they can, they can still, you know, there's a lot of 60, 50 and 60 year olds that, you know, they're like, oh, I think I'm going to start training again. And within months, they're, you know, weeks to months, they're, they're back on top of the podium for their age group. Yes. Because they have all the groundwork is already laid and it's still there. It's just, they're just dusting it off basically. This is super fun because this is finally giving me all the science behind why you never trust old guys on race day. <laughs> yes. Yes, I've learned a couple of those. I, for some reason, thought turning 50 that I was going to be uh, up there on the podium uh, even more than I, than I was in, the, in my 40s. And I've been getting it handed to me several times <laughs> by a couple of <laughs> Some There was one, it was gravel race, and uh, I, I'm a pretty good climber. So early on, like on one of the big hills, I always like to just kind of test the field, get an idea of where people are at. And um, usually I can kind of sprint ahead and, and drop the majority of the folks, at least that I'm competing against and, uh, and be like, okay, this is going to be a good race. And I did that. And a guy that I thought was in my age group, turned out he was actually 60 plus. <laughs> Not only did he hang with me, but he passed me on the uphill. I'm like, 
man, this is not going <laughs> to be. This is going to be a tough race. And afterwards, eh, I've forgotten his name. I'm terrible, like I said, with names. But turned out he was on the 1988 Olympic team, pro roadie, the uh-huh. you know national champion, and yeah. just got into gravel racing. You know, last year for funsies. For funsies, yeah, yeah. And you know, and again, decades of training, decades of competing. Mm-hmm. You know, just had to. You know quickly get back into shape, get that blood volume up to where it needs to be, you know, heart, everything else, you know, he's stroke volume and ejection fraction is already where it probably was, you know, when he was younger or not, it hasn't declined much. Same thing with the, all the, the highways, the, um, the arteries, you know, arteries and capillaries that are delivering that oxygenated blood to his muscles. And, you know, so it's just getting the muscles back in shape and getting the blood back to where it needs to be. And that's amazing. I, I love talking to you about this. I mean, my brain is just cycling over here, thinking about all the different ways that this this relates to both the uh, the world of my my fun training and racing, and also my my work and right. how like the, the there's body... so many overlaps. I mean, oh, it's man. the same physiological systems. It's just looking at it a different way. And of course, I don't. I'm in a completely different setting than yours, but and don't have the ex- expertise that you have. But uh, I mean, pathology is a, a wild wild way to take this um but just a couple other things i want to touch on i don't want to, you don't want to take too much of your time here but different ways that your your efficiency can be uh altered and i i we we don't have to go too deep into the weeds on this but <laughs> i think we should the uh the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve which i've been studying quite a bit and how you talk about like a, a left shift and a right shift and this is essentially the way that oxygen molecules are released from the hemoglobin, which is the carrying unit on, on the blood cell. And uh, to the right, it is going to release more oxygen to the cells, but it's not going to hold them as well. And to the left, it's going to hold them and not release them as well. And that, i trying to apply that in like a a race type setting, you know, things like temperature and pH, uh, the amount of CO2 that you're retaining. Tons uh, of things affect it. That will. That curve, yeah. Help, help you dump oxygen further. Or if you're, if it's really cold out, then you're going to be retaining oxygen further. So I think about what, what that does in a test like VO2 max, if we had cranked up the heat or if, uh, if I had started in a, a more acidotic state, from not being rested well it it just it boggles my mind to think about the way yeah, this works i think so i mentioned like this is so i remember this is one of the other things so there is a shift in that curve as you go up in altitude which mm-hmm. again my dissertation pieces on that so I, I i don't remember all of the factors that come in but yeah i mean you mentioned the key ones so you know the idea of that curve the way it's set up again it's ideal for individuals at sea level um, it can become detrimental as you go up in altitude, um, but that curve does shift. But it's set up so that the there's a tight binding with the uh, uh, the red blood cells to that oxygen at the level of the lung, and then when it's being offloaded at the muscles where the temperature is higher, the the acidity is higher, it's it's going to want to release that oxygen you know mm. more easily because again the the cells need it more. Um, and so as you work out harder, those levels go up and it makes it easier and easier for that, the red blood cells to release that oxygen. 
and in, I, I haven't done a whole lot with heat acclimatization and, and those sorts of things, but I'm sure there are some shifts to that curve with, again, chronic training in the heat and humidity that, you know, allows for improved performance, you know, the improved performance that people see. Um, probably a bigger one is just the fact that you also, you learn to increase plasma volume and so you don't dehydrate as quickly and, you know, but there's, there's so many factors. I mean, and it's, uh, that's the thing that I love about this as well is that it's so fun. The, the human body, just how amazing it is at adapting. And there's only a few times that it's kind of maladaptive, you know, when we get to the extremes, whether it's extreme altitudes or you're pushing your body to an extreme level, like more than maybe it was built to be, you know, to withstand. Mm -hmm. um, but for the most part, the adaptation and ability of the body to kind of maintain homeostasis, regardless what you throw at it. Mm -hmm. um, it's just, yeah, we're incredible machines. With training and exposure. With training, <laughs> I feel yeah. like <laughs> yeah. what, what we don't handle well is uh, rapid exposure to environments that we have not spent much time in. Right. And then the, like the, the whole idea behind Wim Hof, you know, is, is the, the cold exposures and um, basically showing your body what the extremes look like so that it's ready and can be adapted to hot or cold in different strains. Well, they, I mean, yeah, a good case in point is, um, you know, so, Al, Al, you know, mountain climbers. You know, if you're going to climb Everest, um, you know, they take weeks, you know, sometimes mm -hmm. months to slowly go up. You know, they go up in altitude, set up a base camp, drop back down. If you, you know, and they, as a result, they're able to summit to the top of Everest without oxygen, supplemental oxygen, um, and come back down. If you were to take one, someone from sea level, the same person, and helicopter them up there, drop them off, they would be dead within like 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, the body's like, can't deal with this. Yeah. All those adaptations have to occur. Wow. Well, one other thing I wanted to, to highlight, because I, I don't know, unless you've spent a lot of time studying physiology, uh, it's easy to just glaze over when someone talks about uh, metabolism and your anaerobic versus aerobic. And, you know, the different mechanisms. You talk about the Krebs cycle and electron transport chain and how, how much more efficient we are aerobically than anaerobically. Uh, do you remember the actual breakdown of how much ATP you can create aerobically? I think it's 36 anaerobic? is what you, well, so that's, yeah, again, this is one of yeah, those things I, you dump after I you. I know, right? Yeah, but um, I think it's 38, but it costs you two. Um, uh, and I could be wrong. Someone's probably a, a physiology student that's taken a test. This is gonna be like, no, no. But <laughs> I, think the, I think the net is uh, 36 ATP. Okay. Um, which is, yeah, what, is what, incredible compared to, so creatine, it's one to one, um, lactic, I forget and when we're looking at lactic, if it's two, but I mean, I think it's, it's close to 10, 10 maybe, times the amount, right? It, it, it's sizable. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, you don't have the byproduct, your byproduct is carbon dioxide, right? you know, the other one, your byproduct is lactate and actually that can be burned as a fuel source. It's a substrate that you're your heart especially can deal with but only up to a certain amount mm -hmm. um and then after that it becomes problematic as we all know right when we've pushed ourselves too hard far harder to clear lactate than it is co2 yeah and make it easy but yeah yeah harder to get rid of it and that's that's one thing that uh different recovery algorithms like i i use a whoop um which is is a lot of fun i like the data but something that it 
as a huge void in data is the ability to determine blood lactate levels because my cardiovascular system might be very well recovered and it'll give me a nice green score in the morning. And then I go try to ride and my legs are just shot because they haven't cleared the lactate from the last, last episode of insult, so to say. That or, um, or just, you know, the, the, the microfiber t- tears in the muscle mm, that yeah. you know, still have to rebuild from that hard effort that caused, the, caused you to be above lactate threshold. That could also be a piece of it. Because, mm. I mean, my, again, there, we, we, we know a lot about physiology, but I don't think we, we certainly don't know everything, you know. But, yeah. I mean, really, your lactic acid should get cleared out pretty quick. So when people talk about having heavy legs the day after a workout and they blame it on lactic acid, that may be part of it, but I'm sure there's probably more to it. And a lot of it's probably muscle damage. I mean, the mm. way your muscles, you know, get stronger is you're actually ripping those actin myosin fiber heads that, you know, are causing, allowing you to contract your muscles. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so you break it down and, and, and then it comes back, you know, stronger. The, the fibers come back longer. Or if you're doing, you know, more weight specific training, you know, you get the hypertrophy, they get bigger. And so I think that's probably. My guess, and again, I haven't ever, it's outside of my realm, but my guess is that, that that's a big part of that day after, you know, tired legs, heavy uh, legs feeling too. Oh, uh, man. Well, I know we could continue going on and on with this. Um, Jason, what do you got? I got one last question that is going to maybe be a bit of a transition out of, okay. completely out of the depths, and then we'll move us back into shallower waters for a second. But... There's one little thing about this test that, uh, as I've talked to some other people about it, it gets the same reaction every time, which is, and I think it was summed up best, I talked to Daniel Matheny about it, Mm -hmm. a former guest on the show, and I mentioned that we had done a VO2 max test on Josh, and he said, oh yeah, the test that gives people eating disorders, Mm -hmm. (laughs) because of a little thing that is on one of those columns, VO2 slash KG. The fact that all of that main number that everybody focuses on is Divided by, by body weight. weight. Yeah. yeah. So with everything else that we've just talked about, it would be easy to see, like if you took a Duplo view of this, like, oh, well, this much VO2, I'll just drop my body mass and yeah. I'll be better. I'll be faster. Right. But there has to be more to that. Yeah. So, and we'll, so let's step back. So we, when we measure VO2 max or VO2 peak, um, so we measure it in liters per minute, so in absolute mm-hmm. terms. Yeah. Josh's was, what, 4 point, the one minute data, you're like 4.439 liters mm-hmm. per minute, which is, so it's great to know this is, that's the total amount of oxygen that he was using, his body mm-hmm. was using. If I want to compare his aerobic fitness to say my aerobic fitness, and I'm probably 40 pounds lighter than you. I mean, of course, a bigger guy is going to have, he's going to be able to use more liters of oxygen per minute mm-hmm. than a smaller person. Um, so we always divide it by body weight to kind of make a, so it's what we call relative VO2 max. Mm-hmm. So we can compare people of different sizes. Um, and then you can go even one step further where you, um, if you know, if you do like a DEXA scan, you know, their lean muscle mass, you can divide it by the lean muscle mass. Cause that's really what, you know, fat's not, fat's not using ATP. It's not mm-hmm. t- using oxygen. Um, and so that allows you to even compare, say, uh, women um, to men because, you know, so women typically have a lower VO2 max 
if we look at you know absolute terms because they tend to be smaller than men mm -hmm. in relative terms in milliliters per kilogram because you know they still have a higher percentage body fat for mm -hmm. for good reasons than than men so to compare a man to a woman and their vo2 max or vo2 peak you really have to look at lean muscle mass you have to mm -hmm. divide it out by that you know and then they're you know virtually the same for a given you know there's not really many there's to my no i can't think of any gender differences you know once you get to that because it's just we're comparing muscle mass to how much oxygen is being utilized but going to mm -hmm. so going to your point um you know most of us um other than you know highly elite athletes yeah we we probably have some extra fat that we're carrying around some of that is as we as we've talked about is it's fuel for you know long endurance rides so we need to have some mm -hmm. um some of it is critical for you know just protecting organs and things like that but but most of us if we cut our body weight lose fat mass not muscle mass you know our vo2 will obviously you mm -hmm. know vo2 relative vo2 is going to go up and it's going to make us a better athlete but but yeah certain lots of people take it can go too far and so yeah trying to find that balance is important that's something that this test also kind of you know if we were to combine this with a dexa scan and so we knew what your body fat is we could say hey you drop you know you, you can safely drop 10 pounds of mm. um fat your vo2 is going to go up to this that you know it's going to save you minutes in some races mm. how does one perform a dexo scan uh, that's actually really easy. So it's, um, and I, I want it, I would think, so I know Centura has one. I don't know if we have one in the Hibble Center, but mm -hmm. I, I probably need to look. <laughs> I need to find out because, <laughs> uh, especially as we're talking about it, it's certainly something we had at the Human Performance Lab at the Air Force Academy, but, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it looks like a bed basically that you lie on and there's just a scan, uh, an arm that goes over your body and, um, it's, uh, Let's see, DEXA dual X-ray absorbency. It's basically bouncing, you know, radiation. Um, it's it's one of those things you have to sign a waiver. It's like a low-grade X-ray, basically. Yeah. But it's um it can de decipher, um you know, fat versus muscle mass based on density, mm -hmm. and and so it ends up with this base basically picture of you, you know, and uh, kind of. The lighter grays, the fat, the darker grays, the muscle, it can go through and it basically can, um, again, using algorithms, determine what your body fat is. You know, you're at 12%, you're at 30%, you're 6% fat. Mm -hmm. um, but the one we had, again, at the academy, and this was more than a decade ago, um, I mean, it broke out, you know, your lean muscle mass in grams, your fat mass, you know, and then again, you have the same, just like the VO2 peak, shows you where you are on the scale of normal and, mm -hmm. you know, if you're too low or you know too high and and helps you adjust your diet and exercise to hopefully get to a healthier you know body composition that, that's basically just a really high-tech fancy way of doing biometric testing um similar to like hydrostatic weighing yeah so hydrostatic so hydrostatic weighing um you can do the same way because mm -hmm. um i mean and, and again it uses equations you're based off of it that one i believe they, they I want to say that they actually had to do cadavers, you know, so they measured mm -hmm. a bunch and then they yeah. cut them apart and be like, okay, this is, they had this guy that we dropped in the tank, had this much, this many pounds of muscle, this many mm -hmm. pounds of fat. Um, so yeah, the DEXA is the 
the easier version of that, it takes a little bit longer, but all you have to do is lie down yeah. and get a little bit yeah. of radiation versus put on a swimsuit and, you know, um, dunk your under the water yeah. and hold your breath. You know, you have to, because the trick on that one is you have to get all of the air out of your lungs mm -hmm. or as much as you can. Obviously, you can't, you have to determine, we always had to mathematically figure out what the residual volume. lung volume is, you know, but you're trusting the person to, okay, it's like a dunk completely under the water, blow all the air out, and now that you, uh, you know, you, you want to take a breath, now you got to just sit really still while we try to measure your weight, uh -huh. you know, and, and so it's a tough test for a lot of people to do, you know, stay underwater, wanting to breathe, but I've just exhaled everything out, and now they're telling me I have to sit very still mm -hmm. so I can get weighed. And, and again, there's, there's issues yeah. with that because again, we're measuring and then we're estimating, okay, this is what they had left, uh, as far as air in their lungs. But we already talked about how everyone's mm -hmm. lungs are a little bit different. And so again, it comes back to that same issue of, we're assuming you have average lungs and you, therefore you have an average amount of air left in your lungs, assuming you actually blew out all the air you could blow out. And DEXA's, I mean, obviously it also has some, none of it is going to be perfect, but all of it gives you better data than you had before. Oh, Sorry, well, we, yeah, we could go on easy, forever. Yeah. To, yeah. It's so fun. Yeah. I, I just really enjoy talking to you about this, but, um, to come up for air here a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I just, I really appreciate you being willing to, uh, to put me through this test and to share this insight and, uh, the breakdown of what, what a lot of it means. It's just, it's so fascinating and it's amazing to see what you can learn about your body and how it functions and how you can dial those things in based on what your goals are and what it looks like going down the road. Uh, yeah, I just really appreciate it. Yeah, no, I love to talk about it. Yeah, I can tell. It, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I wish I remembered more of, uh, I mean, so many of the things that I learned that I haven't used in decades comes back and, and but again, can't remember all of it. So yeah. I haven't used it enough. Through through this process, are there any kind of nuggets of uh, of things that you'd like to share? How people can can help improve themselves, or anything that you'd like to touch on in that area? Um. Well, so I mean, Hibble Center, we're we're there to help anyone that wants to mm -hmm. to get better. I mean, the one thing that, and we talked about, I mean, the the body is just amazing. You know what it can adapt to, and um. You know, invariably, all of us are can push ourselves harder than we think we can, and that's where those adaptations occur. Mm -hmm. You know, is kind of overwhelming your body, and so so much so that it's like, wow, I couldn't deal with that. I need to. What do I need to do to change so that I can deal with it the next time that that happens? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, again, can take it to an extreme, but most of us, um, you know, that that's where those those adaptations, those changes that can occur and i i kind of was just thinking back to i mean even some of my you know like in high school you know huge epic mountain bike day where we did like 18 miles you know and then in college you know it's like yeah. 40 mile ride and i remember right. we were all so bonked that like it was raining we stopped at a gas station none of us we were all cadets at the air force academy we didn't none of us had cash we we found a place that we were able to like turn in our military ids and we're like we will come back for these and pay you for the food but we we need sustenance to be able to get back to, you know, the house that's still four miles away, you know, and, 
and and now you know going being able to go out and do you know 100 mile rides with 9000 vert and they don't hurt anywhere near as bad as all those others and it's again just this mm-hmm. you know what your body's capable of doing and, and i am not pushing the envelope by any means compared to these you know the uh kansas unbound the guys that you know in fact one of my friends uh, my wife's friend you know 350 miles mm-hmm. um 20 you know more than i think she had two nights out you know i mean just that's a lot of suffering that's i can't imagine putting my body through that but i mean yeah that the body's capable of adapting to and letting you do that sort of stuff is just amazing. Um, so, I mean, I guess it's a very long way of saying, I mean, that all of us can improve regardless of whatever it is we want to improve, whether it's a aerobic performance or just being eating and living a healthier life. From what I've seen, I mean, the Hibble Center can help in all of those regards, you know, mm-hmm. re- regardless of where you are on that spectrum of, you know, just starting out wanting to be healthier to elite level athlete that wants to to be even better. Oh, good stuff. Good stuff. Well, we were able to touch on some of your best day, worst day situations in the, in the last episode, but do you have any other uh, experiences or stories that correlate with how you've experienced these, um, these realities personally these highs and yeah lows. so and i and again i apologize the i should have listened to a podcast before the first one and been prepared for that best day worst day it, it is with three to four decades of racing and bikes and skiing biathlon um when i was in washington and you maybe remember there's all sorts of multi-sport races up there which mm-hmm. were some of the the funnest races oh yeah um that gap to gap ridge to river where you start at the top of basically a downhill area in the springtime and you know, it's a cross-country ski leg, and then it's a downhill ski leg to your bike that's waiting for you, and then you bike to, you know, to run, and then you finish by getting in the canoe and paddling across the finish line. And yeah. you know, by the time the okay, day's done, like you've, a blast. you've covered like 110 miles, and it's uh-huh. just, each event is just short enough that like, like about the time your legs are getting tired of biking, you're running. By the time you're tired of running, you're paddling. And and so, you know, you feel great throughout the entire race. And then, of course, the next day, it feels like you got hit by a semi-truck. But <laughs> so those sorts of, I have good memories of a lot of those sorts of events. Um, I was trying to think about best day, worst day on a bike. It is tough because it's really hard to have a worst day on a bike. Like, you, like mm-hmm. it's been talked about so many times. I mean, one of them that kind of came to mind, it was maybe one of the toughest days on the bike, was uh, the very first day of the Breck Epic um, six day stage race in Breckenridge. Yeah. Um, it was my first big stage race. And, uh, the first day was the weather was the worst that they've ever seen. Um, and they, and they told us afterwards, something. they're like, yeah. yeah, you know, we would have canceled it, but the pros had already gone through mm-hmm. to this one point. And so, um, so, I mean, it was just, we started the race, it, it was overcast, it was a little cold and then it started raining and then it was snowing and there was, you know, I mean, mud puddles everywhere so mud is getting sprayed up everywhere Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. the snow is kind of coming down in big flakes sticking to the gears and chain you know like everything nothing derailers aren't working i remember i i finished the race i couldn't feel my fingers towards the end you know it's like you're going down those sketchy downhills and you're like i think i'm putting on the brakes but i can't tell or you know and Uh you were you you were afraid to squeeze too hard Mm -hmm. because you don't want to you know go over yeah exactly but you couldn't tell what was too hard because yeah, I just had no feeling. 
and and thank God they um, like the day the weekend before they'd had some sort of volleyball um, event there, and so they had these boxes of leftover T-shirts, and I had like three of them that I like I used several like towels, you know, dry myself off, and then I'm covering myself up, warming myself. I mean, I was hypothermic. It was it was, but looking back again. It was a super fun, you know, I mean, it, it's, it sucked to be there that day and it, but the weather got better. The rest of it was, was great. So, so I know if you can call one. that a worst day, it was a tough day. I think the worst days are been days where you have some mechanical that leaves you mm. out there and you're just stranded. Like I've, I've busted a couple rear derailleur hangers. I think the first time was back when like my old client, which mm-hmm. it didn't have. I mean, at least now they have removable yeah. hangers so you can carry a spare one and but I mean, I busted the the aluminum frame, and I was miles from you know the trailhead. And so, trying to turn your bike into a strider on technical <laughs> terrain, you know, and yeah. covering ten miles, yeah. and you're like, this is not the not the way I envision doing these trails. Um, that those have got to be like the worst days, is where you you can't finish the ride because of a mechanical. I think. Yeah, I once uh, the suffering part. I oh no, that that that's just yeah. It's not fun at the time, but mm-hmm. after the time, you know, when you're done, you're yeah. It's always good memories. Yeah, mm-hmm. I once uh, broke my front wheel in half in a field of nothing. That's just where it chose to die in a happy, warm alpine field. Completely folded it. No way to fix it, and I had to hike the stupid bike with no front wheel seven miles back out to the trailhead. <laughs> you just can like, just yeah. um wheelie it all the way back you, know, you don't have the, that skill level to i would love to say i'm that yeah. good i don't think i could have wheelied at seven feet yeah no uh well it's again so fun um i learned a ton through this and i look forward to you know our continued conversations just as we ride together um but if if someone listening wants to learn about themselves and how they can uh improve in these ways how, how do they sign up for a test? Like, what's that process look like? So, they, so I would start with the Hibble Center website. I don't have that. We will that make email, sure it yeah, is we can, in that link, the show notes. Yeah. And um, my understanding is that they're working on the new website right now. Um, I think right, I, I think at the moment they haven't posted all of the, like the price charts and all the things that we offer. Um, hopefully it's out there by now, but, um, but I know they were having some technical difficulty um, earlier with it, but, um, but I know that at a minimum, there's a spot that talks about the altitude and metabolic testing, um, our human physiology and performance lab, Mm -hmm. um, with a contact link, you know, if you're interested. And so you just, there's a spot where you can email or fill in that information and, uh, that, uh, ends up getting you in touch with me. And, uh, and then we go from there, find out what you need, what, what it is you're looking to achieve and, and then work, work something out, whether you have a coach or, you know, you're just doing it on your own. And you don't just do VO2 and lactate threshold tests. What, what are some of the tests oh, that you provide? Yeah, so we, uh, so economy measurements, um, running economy um, more so. But we're working on trying to do like bike fit economy too. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do have someone in the lab that uh, they have a really nice bike. We have a bike fit machine. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the idea of putting you at say 150 watts on the bike fit machine, measuring your metabolic, you know, your VO2 and then small tweaks to the bike, you know, does that improve your miles per gallon? Basically, you know, if we, if we adjust the seat forward or back or up or down a little bit, you Mm -hmm. know, taking advantage of that 
that perfect mechanical advantage of your leg cycling. Mm -hmm. You know, what's the sweet spot as far as bike fit to be as efficient as you can as it relates to utilizing oxygen. Um, resting metabolic rate is another one that we've done a lot of tests with. So again, there's plenty of charts out there that say based on your age and your fitness level, you know, this is how many calories you need per day. You know, minimal number of calories can vary tremendously from person to person. And so um, we've had quite a few, both people looking to lose weight, but also um, at least one elite athlete who's, who's competing overseas. She keeps coming back in just to kind of tweak her, you know, this is the, my baseline calories of what I need. And then this is how I need to adjust it based on my workouts, you know, each time. So she's working with a nutritionist, but they're utilizing the resting metabolic rate data to ensure that she, A, is getting enough calories to stay healthy and fit and competitive, but also staying within this very restrictive weight category that is required for her sport. Oh, wow. And, and that, uh, that's, an, again, an, that's an area that I hadn't really, I mean, all the sports I've, I've done seem hard, but, you know, you add that other layer of, oh, I also need to keep my weight within this, this range, uh, you know, and trying yeah. to figure out what even category, like she's in a position where she could go up or down a weight class, you know, but she's got to weigh the fact of, okay, what's the competition like in those different classes and... Mm -hmm. If I'm adding more muscle mass, you know, like what's the sweet spot for me personally as a competitive athlete in this sport? And so I certainly can't give her the whole answer on that, but we can give her the data that she and her coaches and her nutritionists can use to, to kind of find what works best for her. Wow. That is wild. <laughs> yeah. So it's, yeah. Uh, I mean, we have a pro, I have a ton of, ton of protocols programmed in, but I'm happy to, there's been several folks that have reached out to me that were, they were testing Boulder and they're like, hey, I want to do the same test I did five years ago and see where I am to be able mm -hmm. to compare. And, you know, we've been able to, I just basically mirror the protocol that they did in Boulder so that they are getting all the data that you got, but specific to the previous test so that they can compare their gains or losses, you know, over the last five years. So we're flexible. That's so cool. Well, the, the website is hibblecenter.org, and that's H-Y-B-L-C-N-T-E-R. Yep. C-E-N-T-E-R. -E yeah, you got <laughs> it the first time. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah, thanks. I should know that. No. <laughs> no. I try to focus on just the, the mm -hmm. testing piece and less involved in the marketing and all of that. Well, hopefully for anybody listening, you have uh, enjoyed hearing this, this dive down the rabbit hole here. And just, just a taste of the information that you can glean from doing some, some additional testing um, and having an expert such as, as Michael here help you out. Uh, yeah, I had fun. I learned a lot. Yeah, this was awesome. Michael, thanks so much for coming back. And uh, uh, My pleasure. Yeah, we'll probably look forward to talking again somewhere down the road. Yeah, it was great to see both of you again. And uh, yeah, like I said, love doing this. All right. so. awesome. We'll see you soon. All right, thanks. If you want to know more about stand-up pedal action, you can check us out online at supa.bike. That's S-U-P-A dot B-I-K-E. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>